You're listening to audio from Ascend Church. For more information about Ascend or to access more gospel-centered tools to grow as a disciple of Christ, visit ascendkc.org. And a great responsibility knowing that each time we come to God's Word, He expects to use it in our lives. And so I've been here at Ascend Church since February with my wife Amy and my two daughters, and we have just loved getting to know many of you. And there's many of you still that we don't know, and many of you that have even been here uh, for a very long time that we're just starting to, to be able to come to acquaintance with. And if you have been around me much, uh, you know that I'm full of what many people like to call useless information. Um, I find it entertaining, somewhat uh, amusing many of the facts that I just happen to remember, and uh, probably because most of them seem at first unbelievable. Something like the average American eats 16 pounds worth of cereal a year, drinks 600 cans of soda. More people die pulling vending machines over on themselves than are injured in shark attacks each year. Uh, Lots of great things like that. UFOs. A UFO sighting is reported every three minutes worldwide. Every three minutes. So during my sermon, that's like 15, 20 of those things are going to happen. They're seeing UFOs out there, right? 24% of the area of Los Angeles is covered with cars. 24%. Every four steps, you're hitting a car in Los Angeles. If you've been there, you might believe that. Um, uh, Personal favorite, though, the average stadium attendance at a Major League Baseball game. You can take that number, and 80% of them have purchased a hot dog. Or it averages out to 80%. So if you're like my wife and you don't eat hot dogs, somebody's eating a hot dog on your behalf to get us up to that 80% for that. Or if your whole family doesn't eat, there's a family there that is just putting those guys away. So random useless things that are somewhat unbelievable at times. Like how are these things happen? What's going on with these? And I start with uh, levity in the unbelief because we're going to go somewhere really heavy this morning. And we're going to talk about the reality of unbelief in our midst and in our worlds. And we're going to talk about the fact that there are people that we love, that we see all the time, who don't believe in Jesus. How do we deal with that? What is it that we are called to do and act? And how are we to be with that reality around us? Because as we look over the next six weeks, many of us are going to be sitting at tables with these people. We might not see them, but just around the holidays, but we'll see them now, invite them into our homes, experience their lives in a greater sense. And that can be awkward at times, possibly more awkward than the person who's rooting for the Cowboys at Thanksgiving or the one that always wants to talk about politics or whatever it is that adds levels of uncomfort to your meal, the fact that you see these people that you care deeply for, that you love passionately, and that you understand are not walking with the Lord. And so as we wrestle with that, I want to take us to a place where I began to wrestle with this truth. I began to wrestle with it when I went out to seminary, and as a 22-year-old, I had moms and dads coming up asking me, hey, what do I do with my son or daughter who now no longer believes? I was like, wow, that's a great question, because I'd never dealt with it. I had never dealt with the fact that there were people who were passionately loved by others who had walked away from the faith. There were people who they had worked hand in hand with them in ministry who then had gone away. And so what was I to do? I I was in that moment reminded of something that I'm reminded of all the time. I don't have all the answers, but I have to look to God's word to find those things. 
And so that began a journey for me at examining what the scriptures said about unbelief. What is it that the scriptures teach about that? Because as we walk through it, we see there's often two groups. There's the group that's following God and the group that's not. And a lot of times we would like everybody to be in the group that's following God, but their actions, their thoughts, their hearts display that they're not in that group. And so the big idea that we're going to wrestle with this morning is this. Though God desires salvation for all people, some will willingly choose to reject him. And as we do that, we're going to examine that through the life of Judas. And you might be saying, why Judas? Why is Judas the place to go with this? As I read through the scriptures and was wrestling with this, my mind was fixated on one verse in John 17, 12. I'll invite you to turn there, John 17, 12. And in the gospel of John, as I read this verse, I centered my study down to, I have to know what this verse says. Because if I don't know what this verse means, I'm not going to know what I'm to do with these people in my life and in the lives of others. You see, in John 17, we have Jesus praying the high priestly prayer. He's praying for the disciples that he has at that moment who are soon to be scattered as well as the disciples in all times. And in doing so, his main purpose is offering encouragement to them. And so in the midst of this encouragement that he seeks to give to his disciples in that moment and the rest of time, why is it that he talks about unbelief? And why is it that he prays about Judas? And so I found in this verse a pivotal question for us to look at. John 17, 12 reads, While I was with them, I kept them in your name, which you have given me. I have guarded them, and not one of them has escaped or been lost, except the son of destruction, that the scriptures might be fulfilled. So if Jesus in this prayer says, hey, one of these people has been lost, how is it that that person was lost? What has taken place? Was he not strong enough to save? Was he not strong enough to keep them in their midst? Or is there some other nature of the exception that he speaks of? And so as I studied that, as I worked through that, I came across three facets of unbelief that we're going to examine this morning. And in doing so, we'll see that there is a great and strong reality of unbelief in our midst that we as believers are called to interact with. We'll begin with the fact that unbelief is not surprising. And it's something that's even interesting as I say it again. I said it in first service and it's like, wow, you know, it's not surprising. But for me, it really was. As a kid who grew up in the church, I thought that all of my friends who went to church were believers. All the people that I saw on stage were walking faithfully with the Lord. Every person that I interacted with lives in America. They've got to be a believer, right? But reality and time showed that it was much different. And so as we deal with this verse, we have to say, hey, who is the son of destruction? Who is the son of perdition it speaks of? doesn't mention Judas by name. Remember, he is praying for this prior to the betrayal. He doesn't use it by name lest he would just kind of open the can of worms of what's happening. But he speaks of him, these words, son of destruction, son of perdition. Every time that word, that phrase is used in the scriptures, it deals with the eternal destruction that is to come. And so this is a heavy way of speaking of what we find to be Judas's reality. Because Judas displays to us that unbelief is real, and it should not be surprising. As we walk through the Gospels, we're introduced to many characters here in the Gospel of John. We get some really awesome introductions to some of the disciples. 
And so I tried to figure out what does it say about Judas? What is it that makes him different than everybody else? Why is it that he's set apart, that he's different? What is the nature of that exception? And I saw this important truth. Judas, though part of the 12, is never really a part of the group. Every time he's mentioned in the scriptures, he's set apart from the rest. There's never a reality of belief displayed in his life. There's never a point of repentance. There's never a commendation of his faith. You see, when we're introduced to Judas, I'll ask you to turn to John chapter 6. It's in the context of the unbelief of the masses. We have other people, other disciples who get great stories about how Jesus drew them to him, how Jesus saw, commended their faith, and saw they would see even greater things. But with Judas, we pick him up at possibly the worst church growth passage in scriptures. Jesus has just completed the feeding of the 5,000. There's 5,000 plus people there. He starts to tell them what reality is going to be, and that group dwindles down to 12. From over 5,000 to 12. And he turns to his disciples and says, hey, everybody else has left. They've heard what I really mean. They've heard what it's going to be. They've heard what life is going to be like. Do you want to go with them as well? And it's in this context that Peter responds. Peter, always willing to give an answer, says, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life, and we have believed, and we've come to know that you're the Holy One of God. And Jesus answers him and says, Did I not choose you, the twelve? And yet one of you is a devil. He spoke of Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot, for he, one of the twelve, was going to betray him. It's our introduction to Judas in the Gospel of John. The unbelief of the masses, the betrayal, the one called the devil. The next time we see him is in chapter 12. In chapter 12, we see this beautiful display of worship by Mary as she takes this ointment, this valuable thing, and pours it out on Jesus. In that moment, we see Judas and who he is. Chapter 12, verses 4 to 6, but Judas Iscariot, one of his disciples, he who was about to betray him, said, why was this ointment not sold for 300 denarii and given to the poor? He said this not because he cared about the poor, but because he was a thief. And having charge of the money bag, he used to help himself to what was put in it. You see, the worship of Mary is contrasted with the reality of who Jesus, or Judas is in that moment. Jesus is purely worshipped by Mary who says, I'm giving everything to you. And Judas says, you're wasting everything you have. The very next chapter we see his next interaction as we see Jesus selflessly displaying what it means to be a servant. As he washes the feet of the disciples showing them that they should be above no task and that you should be a servant of all. He washes their feet. Peter says, hey, you shouldn't be doing that. Jesus says, well, if I don't wash your feet, then you're not clean. Then he says, wash my whole body. Wash everything I am. And Jesus says, that's not what it's like. Verse 10, Jesus said to him, the one who is bathed does not need to wash except for his feet, but he is completely clean 
and you are clean, but not every one of you. For he knew who was about to betray him. And this is why he said, not all of you are clean. Because in that moment, he had washed Judas's feet. And in doing so, he had displayed the measure of grace extended to those who don't believe. Knowing that Jesus was doing everything in his power to demonstrate love to Judas, to demonstrate the gospel to him, yet his heart was hard and impenetrant. In chapter 13, verse 21, Jesus says these words. After washing their disciples' feet and after saying these things, Jesus was troubled in his spirit and he testified, Truly, truly, I say to you, one of you will betray me. The disciples looked at one another, uncertain of whom he spoke. One of the disciples, the disciple whom Jesus loved, that's John, was reclining at table at Jesus' side. So Simon Peter motioned to him to ask, John, to ask Jesus of whom he was speaking. So that disciple, leaning back against Jesus, said to him, Lord, who is it? Jesus answered, it's he to whom I will give this morsel of bread when I have dipped it. So when he dipped the morsel, he gave it to Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot. Then after he had taken the morsel, Satan entered into him. Jesus said to him, what you are about to do, do quickly. Now no one at the table knew why he said this. Some thought that Jesus was speaking to him because Judas had the money bag and Jesus was saying to him, but what, buy what we need for the feast or that he should give something to the poor. So after receiving the morsel of bread, Judas immediately went out and it was night. The final interaction that the Gospel of John gives us with Judas is as he betrays him in the garden. John chapter 18 tells us, Now Judas, who betrayed him, he also knew the place. For Jesus had met there often with his disciples. So Judas, having procured a band of soldiers and some officers from the chief priests and the Pharisees, went there with lanterns and torches and weapons. You see, the Scriptures are clear. There is a reality of unbelief around Jesus. We don't just have to look at the life of Judas. We could walk through the Old Testament. We could look at many people within the nation of Israel. We could look at Pharaoh in Egypt. We could look at many of the kings of Israel. We could look at many of the religious leaders of the time of Jesus to see that the scriptures display that unbelief is present and unbelief is real. Because Judas was never a part of the team. He never believed in Jesus or what he was doing. In fact, he fulfilled scriptures about previous betrayals as well. Psalm 41.9 tells us of the way in which David was betrayed by his counselor Ahithophel, his friend in whom he trusted. Psalm 41.9 says, Even my close friend in whom I trusted, who ate my bread, has lifted his heel against me. You see, the religious leaders desired to arrest and kill Jesus, but they had a problem. The people liked Jesus. And if the people liked Jesus, that meant if they did anything to disrupt the status quo, they risked having Rome come in and squash a rebellion and make their lives miserable. So they put a bounty out on Jesus, 30 pieces of silver, the price of a common slave, to say, somebody help us to get this man. And is what they did, they found probably more than they ever dreamed of in Judas. Somebody in his inner circle, 
who could tell him his going ins and coming outs, who could tell him every place that he would be. Because the, the religious leaders explicitly said, and we can find that in the scriptures, hey, let's do this, but we can't do it during the feast. If this happens during the feast, it's over for us. Rome's going to come. It's going to be bad. But God knew that Jesus was to die in the feast, to be the true Passover lamb that died for not just the sins of Israel, but for the sins of all people. And that was to take place according to the prophecy of the high priest that year, who unknowingly said it is better for one man to die than for the nation to die. Though Jesus had poured out his love, his mercy, his life on Judas, Judas willingly chose to not believe. He willingly chose to place his desires, his pursuits, and his life above what Jesus was calling him to. And sadly, he demonstrates this truth. Proximity to the gospel without heart transformation is a dangerous place to be. Proximity to the gospel without a heart transformation is a very dangerous place to be. Repeatedly interacting with God's word, his truth, without appropriately responding builds up a calloused heart, a calloused life that does not respond to the way in which God is working. You see, rather than it softening, rather than it tilling the soil of your heart, rather than it breaking down and uprooting the things that need to be taken out of there, it puts layers and layers and layers of calloused heart that must be dealt with prior to that individual understanding salvation. And so that is a very heavy thing to think of. And that's something that I saw with people in my life and that these people that were speaking to me were recounting that this person, they've heard the truth, they understand it, they know it's there, yet their heart still remains hard to it. So while unbelief is surprising, I don't want us to think that unbelief is not painful because unbelief is painful. And it's painful for many people in different ways. First and foremost, it's painful to Jesus. Think about Jesus and the weight of what he knew was coming and the way in which he poured out himself to Judas and to the other unbelievers in his life, to the many religious leaders, to the men who would mock and beat and kill him, the way in which he displayed grace to them, that he did so willingly and without speaking out. 2 Peter 3.9 tells us the great truth that the Lord is not slow to fulfill his promises, some count slowness, but is patient towards you and not wishing that anyone should perish, but that all should reach repentance. Jesus desires for everyone to believe, but he understands the truth that some will choose otherwise. He knows that though he desires and that though his sacrifice is sufficient for all, some will not choose to accept it. But we also know that the pain doesn't just end with Jesus' pain. It also is the pain of the disciples. Think about the disciples and the unbelief, and specifically Judas's unbelief, and what that would do to them, leading them to this period of the, the three darkest days in their life. Because I know one thing for certain. The Peter that was willing to pull the sword on the mob 
he would have been willing to pull the sword on Judas had he known he would be the one who would betray him. Because the same Peter was the one who we look at his failures, who said that he would stand beside Jesus no matter what, and Jesus said, hey, that's a bold thing to say, and it's not going to happen. In fact, tonight, before the rooster crows, you'll deny me three times, let alone say you can stand with me through everything. You're not ready for that. You see, the disciples experienced that pain. They also experienced the pain of knowing that one who had been in their midst did not believe. One who walked with them through so many things was not truly a follower of God. A third group of people that are affected by the pain of unbelief are actually unbelievers. If you turn over to Matthew chapter 7, in the context of the Sermon on the Mount, we see Jesus teaching about the realities of the new kingdom that he is bringing about. It's an upside-down world for many, and it's far different from what they've expected. And as he starts to close that out, he talks about the reality that there is unbelief present even within the people who say they're a part of God. Matthew chapter 7, verses 21 to 23 read, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. You know, these people here in Matthew chapter 7, they express what's a works-based salvation. These things I have done merit for me now entrance to heaven. Jesus says that's not the case. They don't. There is nothing that they would do that could get them to heaven, for they are not of his people. But it's interesting here, the things that they say are pretty miraculous. Things that I can't even claim. I've never done a miracle. I've never cast out a demon. In the sense that I believe this passage is truly speaking, I've never prophesied. But you know who had? Judas. Judas had done miracles. Judas had been present for miracles. Judas had been present for the casting out of demons. As they were sent out two by two, you know what the scriptures never tell us? They never say that the people said, stop pairing me up with Judas. Everybody else gets it, but this guy is not good. We're 10 for 10 on casting out demons. He's 0 for 10, Jesus. No one ever says that. You see, Judas looked and did everything that everybody else did, which teaches us another important principle that God is willing and able to work for his glory, even in the life of unbelievers, to have his kingdom spread. God is willing to work and able to work, even through unbelievers, for his kingdom and glory to be spread, which is a sobering thought. Because if we're honest, a lot of times we want to look to our works or the things in our life as justifications for our right standing with God. But God can use anything look through the scriptures, God will use rocks when he finds no people willing. It's a sobering thought. But the pain that these unbelievers experience may not be experienced now. It might not be a reality to them now, but it becomes a reality when they realize their eternal separation from God. And that's what Matthew 7 tells us. They're begging, they're pleading for entrance to heaven. 
based upon things that will never give it to them. A fourth group of people who might experience this pain of unbelievers are believers themselves who are struggling. Believers themselves who are struggling with unbelief. They might even be asking a question like, hey, if Judas can walk with Jesus for three years in intimate and close proximity, hearing his words, seeing his miracles, understanding the depth of everything that he's doing, and still not believe, how can I even stand a chance? How is it that I can do anything if I've never even seen what he's done? He saw everything. He knew the truth. How can I work through this? Those believers that find themselves struggling with unbelief. That unbelief and that pain is real. While I was in seminary, I heard John MacArthur at a Q&A speak to this. There was a person who stood up and said, I'm really struggling with my current lack of faith. I feel like I should be closer to God, and I wonder if I even believe. I was like, that's a really transparent question. And what his response was was something I wasn't ready to hear. He said, I want to stop you and let you know you're at a really good place. I was like, whoa. I mean you're at a good place. A good place is when your faith is growing, like you're doing things, you're serving. That's a good place. But John MacArthur said, you're at a good place. I'm like, continue. Let's hear why. Why are you at a good place? He said, you're at a good place because you're sensitive to the Spirit of God in your life. Because you know what unbelievers don't care about? What God thinks. They don't care what God thinks. If they cared what God thinks, they would change their life. If they cared what God thinks, things would be different. But this person was transparent and humble and broken and saw their own unworthiness, saw all of the things that they needed to begin to confess to God so that God could build in them unbelief. Sorry, so that God could build in them belief from their unbelief that he could begin to till the soil of their hearts, that he could begin to plant seeds of the gospel that would be grown and would grow to belief. Because that person who is struggling with unbelief in their life now, as they continue to be focused and sensitive to the Spirit, are allowing God to work in their life rather than shutting him off and shunning him from their presence. A final group of people I want us to see this morning that deal with the pain of unbelief are a place that we don't talk a lot about in the church, a place that I never spoke of when I was growing up in the church, and that's the believers who are left behind by those who walk away. My generation has seen the rise of an unfortunate group called the exvangelicals. Exvangelicals are people who grow up in the church and leave. They carry that name as a badge of honor now as they feel that they've moved on past the realities that the church teaches and they now understand a higher sense of what is meant for their life. They see the brokenness in the church and they point to it as the reason for their departure and they understand that they are moving beyond that to something that they believe is much better. And those who are left behind are left with the pain of watching them do so, knowing that they've turned their backs on the Lord knowing that they no longer despise or they no longer desire to follow him, but even some despise him for who he is. Russell Moore interacts with these people and in doing so, did so at a very personal level and wrote about that because he saw that many of them say the reason for their departure is the church. 
It's the way in which they've been wronged by God's people. In doing so, he says this, if you look at Jesus and the Gospels and you decide you cannot follow him, that's one thing. But it would be a shame to avoid even looking at the claims of the Gospel because you want to avoid at all costs what a church that hurt you said they believed. That's even more the case when your problem is that they didn't seem to believe what they said they believed. We call that hypocrisy. He goes on to talk about what's even more the case and more sad about these people's situations is it's exactly what Jesus said would happen. It's exactly what he said would happen. Matthew 24 talks about it. Mark 13 talks about it. What we've been studying through Pastor Jeff's preaching in Revelation 1 through 3 talk about it. The Spirit repeatedly tells us in the letters of Paul, Peter, John, and Jude that these things will happen and will happen in the name of Jesus. The brokenness of the church should not be a place or a reason for people to depart from God's family. So we cannot excuse the pain of those who have been hurt by the church. We must understand that that's a reality, but we cannot excuse their unbelief. We cannot leave them going in that way. You see, when we look at Judas, we see he came back to the religious people asking for help. The Gospel of John doesn't record it, but the two other Gospels, Matthew and Luke, do, is they talk about how Judas comes back to the religious leaders knowing he's done something wrong. And as he comes back to them, he says, I've messed up. I want to give you what you've given me back and you should let this man go because he's done nothing wrong. And you know what those religious leaders do? They turn their back on him. They don't accept it. They don't let him give him back. They don't do anything about his situation. He went to the people who he thought could help him and he found nothing and his end is tragic because from where he goes from that spirals further and further to darkness. As we think about the way in which these people are and live, they're in two groups. These lost people that walk away from the church are either like Judas who have never been a part of God's people or they're what we commonly call the prodigal. Those who for a season are going to live away from God. But you see, as we reflect on this pain before we pick up the prodigal, I want us to understand something that as demonstrated in an article I recently read. It was about a family over in Italy that has this strange and unique insensitivity to pain. By that I mean that they have numerous examples only in their family of significant injuries for which their family feels no pain. A daughter who separates her shoulder skiing and continues to ski for eight hours not knowing there's anything wrong. It's only when she sits down at dinner to grab a fork and can't hold it that she realizes that there's something wrong with her arm. Another one who receives a significant gash and wraps it up with a bandage and runs back out to play with their friends and their friends are like, there's something still wrong. You need to go have somebody look at that. And so these people, they wanted to see what's going on with these individuals. They actually found they have a genetic mutation that makes it so that they don't feel pain. And so, as you can imagine, a lot of people are like, let's harness that. Let's figure out that thing. Let's take that and figure out what it is that makes it so we don't feel pain. But for the roughly 20% of the population that lives in chronic pain, that is something that might at first sound like it is the definite thing we should pursue. But there were others who stepped in and said, we need to understand that pain is in our life for a reason. Pain exists in our body for a purpose. 
These individuals said, it's great if we study this and figure out what's going on, but we have to understand that when we reach towards a hot stove and our pain sensors tell us something, they do so telling us to pull away so we don't hurt ourselves, so we preserve ourselves. When we touch something sharp and we touch just the prick of it, we pull away because our pain receptors say, don't continue to push down further on that if you want to preserve yourself. You see, pain elicits a survival response in us. And so I hope that we understand that this pain, that that you fall into one of those categories, if you're experiencing that pain, that you now take that pain and use and find the purpose of it. Why is it that you experience the pain of the lost people around you? Or why is it that you now feel the pain of unbelief in your life? Or you wonder on the eternal promises that might be there? Because our third reality we're going to look at this morning is that unbelief is not always final. Unbelief is not always final. For some, when we come out of darkness into marvelous light, we never look back. For others who are exposed to the truth, there's a period of wondering. There's a period of of going back, falling back into the sin that was present in our life, not being strong enough to stand on our own, not being led and mentored and discipled and built up in God's word, but instead struggling through that period. For many, that time in the lost draws them back to God and his promises One of my favorite authors is J.R. Tolkien, and in his Lord of the Rings, he has a phrase that I believe has been butchered by our current world. The phrase, not all who wander are lost, is from one of his books. It's a more full quote that the guys will throw up on the screen behind us. It's, or behind me, not behind you. All that is gold does not glitter. Not all who wander are lost. The old that is strong does not wither. Deep roots are not reached by the frost. When we think about how this word and how this phrase is used in our culture today, it's now a justification for, hey, let me live my life as I'm doing it. Let me go out into this place, and that's not what Tolkien meant. You see, he said that wandering is a dangerous place, and it is. In his stories, those who wander from the path, those who wander in those things, some are drawn back, some are left in their wandering. But the focus is in the redemptive nature of that last phrase. Deep roots are not reached by the frost. The dangers encountered by the wanderers, for those who have roots that draw them back to the place that they should be, they are saved by those roots. They are saved by that knowledge of which they should return to. Those are the prodigals for whom we pray. Because when they come to their senses, their roots allow them to come back to the truth that they know. As we examine this today, I invite you to turn to Luke chapter 15. Be our last passage that we're at this morning. Luke chapter 15, it's three parables about the lost. The lost coin, the lost sheep, the lost son. We won't have time to walk through all of those or to be able to focus on all the significance that's there this morning. But I do want us to focus in on the way in which the lost son returns. Because many who are out there who have left do not return because of what they feel awaits them when they do. We'll see here in Luke chapter 15 that the father gives us 
actions. The Father gives us standing on how we should react to these people. Luke chapter 15, I'll pick us up in the story is in verse 17, you know, before this, it's a story that's common to many of us. This man, he took his portion, he took his inheritance, he took his lot. He said, I'm never going to get anything if I stay in my brother's shadow. I'm going to this new land where I'm going to live my life and make a name for myself. He takes all that's his, everything that he's owed. He takes his inheritance, goes into that land, lives licentiously, and in doing so, comes across a famine that leads to him living with and eating with pigs. He comes to his senses and says, I got to go back. I got to go back to where I know things are good. I got to go back there. Verse 17, but when he came to his senses, he said, how many of my father's hired servants have more than enough bread, but I perish here with hunger. I will arise and go to my father and I will say to him, father, I've sinned against heaven and before you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me as one of your hired servants. And he arose and he came to his father. And while he was still a long ways off, his father saw him and felt compassion and ran and embraced him and kissed him. And the son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, bring quickly the best robe and put it on him. Put a ring on his hand and shoes on his feet and bring the fattened calf and kill it and let us eat and celebrate. For this my son was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is now found, and they began to celebrate. You see, the Father demonstrates three mindsets that we should have as we interact with the lost around us. The first one is this. The Father waited with anticipation. The Father waited with anticipation. As the Son comes back, the Father meets him there. He undoubtedly had spent countless hours praying for his Son who was gone knowing that his son may have even been dead, not even knowing his status. Remember, this is before status updates and cell phones and tracking. He can't just look online and see how his kid's doing. He wonders if he's even alive. But he prayed. He waited. He sought him. He anticipated that that son would return. And in his waiting, he was ready for that reunion. He was ready to offer his son the chance to be a part of his family again. You see, because the father led with compassion. The reason many of the people don't want to come back to the church is they believe they will be greeted not by the father, but by the older brother. You look down at the passage, the older brother says what many think they will see when they come back to the church being ungrateful. The older brother says, I've never done any of this junk this guy did. And you don't even look at me. You don't even give me these things that you give to him. The older brother wants justice. He wants to say, I told you so. He wants to do all of these things to his brother, to let him know how wrong he was for what he did. That's what people think they will receive when they return to the church, is the judgment of unbelievers. And why do they think that? Because they've heard, they've experienced. And our church, sadly, not our church specifically, I hope, but churches worldwide, have greeted them that way, demanding justice, demanding things for them, telling them how they must right their wrongs now, rather than compassionately loving them, rather than welcoming them back. He displays, the Father that is, displays for us the importance of setting aside our rights, our needs, our privileges, setting aside everything for the sake of the lost, because he could have demanded anything. He could have said, 
Thanks for coming back. Let me tell you the five-step plan for how we're going to allow you to come back into my family. Let me tell you how you're going to regain not only what you have lost, but build back an inheritance for yourself. He does none of that. He greets him with compassion, and he celebrates his return. He displays for us the mindset of what Paul teaches in 1 Corinthians 8 and 9, that we as God's people are to set aside everything that we can for the sake of the lost whenever possible, knowing that it's only God who can draw those people back in, but that he seeks us as willing servants to be used for his kingdom. The third thing the father demonstrates is he greets with celebration. The truth of the prodigal is they don't think that there's going to be any celebrating when they return. You look at the three parables in Luke chapter 15, they tell us something far different. There is a great celebration when an individual gives their life to the Lord. There's great celebration for those around them. There's great celebration in heaven, whether it's the one of 10, the one of 99, or the one of two. There is great celebration for that. And we as God's people should understand the importance of that celebration because if we're honest, we were in the same place that they were in. We could look at Ephesians 2, or my favorite passage that speaks to this is Titus 3, 3 through 7. It reads, For we ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our day in malice and envy, hated by others and hating one another. Strong words for where we were at. Titus is being told that by Paul. We were all in this boat as unbelievers, hated by others and hating one another. But it doesn't end there. It says, but the goodness and the kindness of our God, our Savior appeared and he saved us, not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ, our Savior, so that being justified by his grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. We were all once unbelievers who by the grace of God have been saved. May we have compassion. May we long with anticipation and greet with celebration those who God draws back to himself. Because we know unbelief is not surprising. Unbelief is greatly painful in our lives. But by God's grace, unbelief may not be final for those around us. As we've walked through this heavy concept this morning, I'm sure that that God has placed people upon your heart, that he is speaking truth into your life right now and prompting. I've taught middle school kids, so I know that some of you have been thinking about this the entire service. What is this white card for? I hope that has not deterred you from being able to focus this morning, but this is the part of the service where we'll talk about this white card. What we ask and what I ask and what first service demonstrated was the first step in dealing with these people in our lives. The first step in displaying to God that we know that though we spend countless hours praying, that we seek to love them with all that we have, we know it's only his work in their lives that can make a lasting change that will draw them to himself. It is only God's work and God's presence that can do that. 
And so as Jacob and Ben come, they're going to sing a song reflecting what we hope is the beginning of the prayers that we offer up for these people. We're going to ask that you write down the names that have been placed upon your heart and that in this song of response that you come forward through the center aisle and place them down in these baskets that we have on either side of the stage and then go back to your seats through the exits on the wall side. In doing so, we as a church commit to praying for these people, praying for the meals that will be shared, the conversations that will be had, the opportunities that God will graciously give you, and hoping that one day we can celebrate the return of even one of these people to him. After that song is finished, I'll come back up and I'll close this in prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the way in which you have saved us, the way in which you have brought us out of darkness and into marvelous light, the way in which you have revealed your goodness, your kindness, your love to each one of us who are your children. But we know that there are those who don't live in that reality. And so as we have humbly come before you and placed their names symbolically here on the stage, we do so knowing that it is only you who can transform their lives. It is only you who can draw them to yourself. And it is only you who can use us in miraculous ways to be a part of their redemption story. And we pray that you would do such things, that you would find us faithful to being your willing vessels of the gospel, that you would find us faithful to being your ambassadors for your kingdom, that you would find us faithful to being your servants that would set aside all of our rights, our liberties, our privileges, set aside anything that we hold to for the sake of the lost people in our lives, that you would use the meals, the conversations, whatever it is that you are laying before us with these people, that you would use us to draw them back to you, that you would use us in a mighty way to watch these lost people be saved, to watch these saved people who may be wandering be drawn back to you and grown up and matured in your faith. God, we pray expectingly that we would be able to celebrate even one of these that you would draw back, that that would be enough to make your grace and your love and your glory fill this place with celebration, knowing that it is you who do this and that it is you who desire these people to walk in community with you. Father, we pray for your blessing upon us as we, your willing servants, look to be used by you. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.